Way City Church, located in Woodbridge, Virginia, is led by Pastor Marlon Yearwood and exists to reach the lost and disciple the believer. I'm sure you've been to services where somebody can uh, preach a whole sermon out of one verse, maybe even the portion of a verse. Today we're going to go through four chapters. Um, <laughs> And that's because uh, we're into a narrative. It's, it's a story that is beautiful. It's a love story that uh, encourages my heart. And I, I, was, I was trying to find out what to, what, what to preach about this week. You know, you, you always have that challenge trying to decide uh, what you're going to talk on. You don't want it to be your desire. You want it to be God's desire. So I spent a lot of time praying about this and saying, uh, if this isn't, you know, what do you want me to speak about? What do you want me to speak about? And I realized what God was talking to me about I think it's something that you all could help. So um, we're going to be looking at the book of Ruth, if you want to find it in your scriptures. And we're going to be reading the whole thing. I didn't send it to Sean or anybody because it'd be too fast to go up on the screen. Um, Most of it, this is such a well-written story that we're just going to be blowing past it. The the scripture speaks so much better than I can. So I always look forward to hearing these great narratives, and I want to get into it. I am going to spend a little time here in the first chapter just to give you some background, just to give you some idea of what's going on. And so this first chapter might be just a little bit longer, and I'm going to talk to my uh, soundboard for just a minute because this is ringing in my ear. It's pretty strong, so I feel like I can't even speak out because it's so powerful. (laughs) But uh, we're going to start, and I'm just going to start with the first verse in uh, Ruth chapter 1. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. There's a lot to unpack right there. Uh, If you don't have a a good understanding of how the history of Israel all plays out, I can give you a few things that will just kind of be places to hang your hat. About 2000 B.C., we have a man named Abraham who's called by God, and uh, he, he sets a people aside for himself. So you can use that 2000 B.C. as a one point, and you think of Abraham and the fathers. At 1500 B.C., we have Moses and the uh, people coming out of Egypt and uh, a nation to himself. At 1000 is King David, and so that's a nice place. And then at 500, we got Daniel in the exile, and then we get to Christ. So during that time, we have the time of the judges listed here, which would be after Moses after the people were called out of Egypt, but before there was a king established. It was a unique time in the world. This is uh, the closest, I believe, that we've ever come to a theocracy on the, on the earth. Uh, God was leading his people directly. And you would think that this would be a golden age, a wonderful time. But as you read the book of Judges, it's, it's an exciting book, it's an interesting book to get into. But the book of Judges... It's kind of a sad story when you look at it. Uh, we, we see the cycle of how man continually turns his back on God. He does his own thing. He comes under God's judgment because God cares about him, so he puts a judgment upon him, brings him back to himself, and as the people cry out for relief, he sends a judge. So this cycle repeats over and over and over in the book of Judges. And there's a main uh, statement that you take out of the book of Judges, and you really ought to think about it when you think of the book of Judges, it's that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now, if that's not a description of our world today as well, <laughs> I don't know what is. But uh, that's the place where we find ourselves 
as we get into the book of Ruth, it's in that time when the judges ruled, when people did what was right in their own eyes. So Father, as we get into this today, and as we study this message that you've given us, as we enjoy this love story that you've sent down to us through the ages, Father, I pray that you will open our hearts to receive what you have for us. Father, I realize the words I say are nothing, but the words you say are life. So help us, Lord, to find what you have for us today. And as always, as we interact with your word, help us to leave this time changed, to have learned the lesson you have for us, to be ready and willing to serve you, to do the work you've called us to do, and to live a life that's pleasing in your sight. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So there was a, a time while the judges were ruling, and there's a famine in the land. Now what does that tell you right off the bat? God had brought them to a land of flowing with milk and honey. He says, you will be blessed here. There will be an abundance of supply as long as you serve me. So the famine in the land is an example of this fact that the people are probably turning their back on God again. It's one of those places in the cycle where they've forgotten themselves and, they're, and they're, they've forgotten God and they're living for themselves. There's a famine in the land and a man from Bethlehem now, this is a true story. This is not a made-up story. This is not some Hallmark message, okay? And true stories are even better than the ones you make up because God superintends everything to come together just the way he wants. Notice where the famine is. It's in the town called Bethlehem. The name means house of bread, okay? They should have remembered that God was their supply. There's a famine in the land. What do you do at that time? You turn your heart back to God. What did this man do? He took his wife and sons and he went to the country of Moab. Shouldn't have done that. <laughs> I don't want to get too far into, you know, uh, really uh, strange doctrine or anything, but to go back to Moab wasn't a great choice. Moab was just on the other side of the Dead Sea. It was fairly close. It was a, a land that Israelites knew about. It was originally established by Lot's children. And if you remember the story a lot, it's not a great story either, <laughs> but uh, Moab had always kind of been a little bit of that thorn in the flesh to Israel. At this time, there wasn't open hostility, there wasn't open war, but it wasn't very nice to uh, take yourself from Israel and go over to Moab. It wasn't the proper thing to do, but this man does. His name, it says in verse 2, is Elimelech. Excellent name, excellent name. It means my God is king. Wouldn't you like that? Wouldn't that be the kind? I've got a great name. You know, David is an amazing name. It means beloved. And it makes me feel good to have that name. You know, there's certain names I would never want. Ichabod is a pretty nasty name, right? The glory has departed. Why would you name your kids Ichabod? <laughs> but, uh, but Elimelech, that's a great name. My God is king. And he's got a wife whose name is Naomi. Naomi means sweet. Oh, isn't that great? Hi, sweetie. You know, Naomi is sweet. So my God is king and sweet. What do they do? They do what's right in their own eyes. They don't say, God, you're in charge. This famine has come for a reason. I'm not sure what the reason is, but you know what? <laughs> it's okay. No, they say, ah, we'll go to Moab. We'll see if life's better there. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name, Naomi, 
And the names of the two sons were Malon and Kilion. While we're talking about names, these are great names. I don't know if they were given these names at birth. It's possible. You know, I remember Esau was given the name Red because he came out all red and hairy. So this may have happened at birth. This may have happened a little bit later. But their names are Malon and Kilion. Sickly and pining. <laughs> okay? And if that's not foreshadowing in the story, I don't know what is, okay? But uh, so Elimelech takes his wife Naomi and his two sons and they head off. They, were, uh, they went to Moab and they lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. And after they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilian also died, sickly and pining die away too. And Naomi is left without her two sons and her husband. And you say to me, Dave, I thought this was a love story. All good love stories start this way. <laughs> All good love stories have to have a problem, a challenge to overcome. In fact, the greatest love story of all starts with a problem, and we'll be talking about that here later at the end. But the problem presented is a sincere problem, a significant problem. At this time, there wasn't a lot of social security, there wasn't a lot of other items to help a poor widowed woman. She was on her own. Whatever she had, whatever that might be, is all that she had to live on. She couldn't uh, take care of herself, she couldn't own property, she couldn't have a job. She was completely dependent on the goodwill of people around her. Now, God had made some rules in the land of Israel which kind of helped those who were orphans, who were widows. Uh, there were a couple of rules in place that supported people like this. God had said, your, your, your crops, they're going to be great. Your crops are going to be amazing. So when you pick your crops, go through the field once and don't go back a second time. Don't go back and get all the grains because leave those for the widows, for the orphans, for those who are destitute. He says, when you're, when you're taking care of your crops, don't glean the fields right to the corner. Leave those edges for the people who don't have anything. So God had set these things up. He had set things in place to take care of the people. And uh, perhaps Naomi was remembering that because uh, she heard them, uh, the Lord had come to the aid of her people and provided food for them. Naomi and her daughter-in-law prepared to return home from there. They're going to go back to Israel where possibly some of these things uh, that, are, that God has put in place will, will support them. Um, and again, I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about other things, whether they should have left in the first place or all that stuff. The fact of the matter is here they find themselves and Naomi decides it's time to go back home. When she does this, she says to her two daughter-in-laws, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. And she kissed them, and they wept aloud and, and said to her, We'll go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Now that might confuse you <laughs> when you first hear that. It's, it's kind of out of place because we don't understand a lot of what's being referenced here. But one of those things that had been put in place by God for the people of Israel was a benefit to them to protect their inheritance. 
God had given them the land, and he had divided the land appropriately. And the land wasn't supposed to be sold, the land wasn't supposed to be given away, that land was yours, and it passed on to your families. And God had even given them a rule, a regulation, that if a man took a wife and died before he had any children, his brother had to go take her as his wife, become her husband, and raise up children. And that first child be named after the brother who had died. And he would get the brother's inheritance, and then the rest would get their own inheritance. This was a, a law in Israel to protect the inheritance. It had happened before. Uh, it had happened in, in the earlier time when Judah's son, Ur, had taken a woman called Tamar as, as his wife. And Ur, it, the Bible tells us in uh, Genesis 35, uh, 30, 35, 36, that uh, Ur was evil in the sight of the Lord, and God killed him. And his brother Onan was given Tamar as a wife, but he didn't like this rule, and uh, he didn't do what was right in God's eyes either, so he was killed. And the story keeps going, but uh, eventually uh, Tamar receives this, in, this kinsman redeemer who gives her a child to continue the name. It's, his name was Pharez, and he will come into the story later because uh, Pharez carries on Ur's family line. So this idea of this kinsman, this close relative, a redeemer who raised up a child in the name of the dead person, was something that the people of Israel had understood. And you need to understand it so that you can understand what Naomi's saying here. She's saying to her, her daughter-in-laws, I don't have anybody who can raise up a new child. And even if I had a husband today, even if I found somebody who wanted to marry me today, would you sit around and wait till I had a child and that child grew up and became your husband? That's ridiculous. So she says to them, you know, am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this they wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Now Orpah seems to have been an, a fine lady. She was married and she took care of her husband. Uh, she seems to have taken care of Naomi. They had a good family relationship and she said, yeah, I'll go with you. But when Naomi spells it all out and says, look, I'm going back to a life of destitution. I'm going back to a life of uh, uh, you know, just total sadness. Why don't you just go back home, go back to your gods, go back to your family, 
They'll take care of you. I won't fault Orpa for doing what she does. It's quite natural. She says goodbye, and she goes home. She's out of the story. We're not going to talk about her anymore. But Ruth says no. And I can't understand why. Because from what I've read in this story, Elimelech wasn't the greatest uh, role model for, for God. He, you know, he didn't set a great pattern. He ran off to Moab when he was, should have been there in Israel. He, I don't know what it was about his life. And, and Naomi, she's all bitter. She's all upset. She's, I don't know what she saw that impressed her, but something did. And I guess I, I take heart from that because God can use anybody to get his message across, right? <laughs> he can use us with all our failures and all our faults. Sometimes I marvel at the opportunity I get to stand up in front of you and talk about God because I still haven't learned how to live for him properly in my own life. <laughs> uh, we were studying uh, Jonah a little while back, and you look at Jonah's life and you see a guy who's just selfish, who, who's angry, who, who doesn't even want the people of Nineveh to be you know, uh, saved. But God uses his message through this stubborn man to get it across. And somehow God's message got through from Elimelech, Naomi, Malon, and Kilion to where Ruth saw the truth. That encourages me. Now, I'd encourage you too that you can talk to people about Christ even with all your faults, even with all your failures, and the message will get through. Somehow, God, who is so great, is seen even in our failures, even in our weaknesses. So it's a, it's a beautiful story. Naomi just says, uh, nothing else I can say. If that's your determination, Ruth, you come with me. And it says, the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred. It's been 10 years. The women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? And Naomi comes up with this statement, don't call me Naomi, which remember means sweet. She says, call me Mara, which means bitter. I'm not sweet, I'm bitter. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Why call me sweet? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. And that little phrase is very instructive to me. Now, I'm not making light of the things that happened to Naomi. Losing her husband was a terrible thing. Losing her sons was a horrible thing. She was in a dire predicament. She was in a bad place. I'll give you that. But you know, we always have an option. We can become bitter if we want to be. It's not other people who do these things to us, it's ourselves. It's the choice that we make. And I'd rather call Naomi, Naomi, than Mara. Because God has made it possible for her to be Naomi, even in all the problems. We're going to get back to that. Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabitess. Notice they keep kind of just, Ruth, the Moabitess, they keep just kind of digging it in there. 
just reminding you that she just doesn't really fit. She's a second-class citizen. She's, she, you know, it's definitely a piece of prejudice that we see right, right through here. Uh, the people are prejudiced against her because she's a Moabitess living here in Israel. They arrived in Bethlehem, the house of bread, at the barley harvest. I mean, again, if you were writing this, you couldn't do a better job <laughs> as a fake. They're coming in just as the barley harvest is being brought in. So this first chapter sets the stage. Yeah, it's a love story. This part is kind of sad, kind of hard, kind of rough, but it gives us a place to build from. It introduces our characters, it introduces a, a theme, and it, it tells us a little bit about Ruth. It tells us who she is, where she's from, it tells us she's loyal, it tells us she's loving, it tells us that she's willing to listen when God speaks to her and tell her what to do. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grains behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, isn't, the way, isn't it the way God always works? It just so happened to be. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, whose young woman is that? The foreman replied, she is the Moabitess who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She went up into the field and has worked steadily from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I have told the men not to touch you. And wherever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this she bowed down with her face to the ground. She exclaimed, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I have been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have given me comfort and have spoken kindly to your servant though I do not have the standing of one of your servant girls. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread, and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. Rather, 
pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up, and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field till evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. I'm sure that means a lot to you, right? <laughs> we don't use that measurement anymore. About three-fifths of a bushel, about uh, five gallons. Wow. But then again, remember, this is the barley harvest. This has got to last them all year. Five gallons sounds like a lot for a meal, but it's not a lot to put aside. It's still a, a pretty good haul. Most of the people remember at this time, the poor, the, the, um, the widows, they were wandering through and grabbing handfuls of the leftovers. They got a quart, maybe. Maybe two quarts, they were lucky. Here she's coming home with five gallons, okay? She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after he had eaten enough. And that's that cooked portion, that fancy portion that Boaz had set aside for her. Her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? What, uh, where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and to the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers, that Gaol, that person who was put aside by God to be the redeemer of those who had lost. And these are the ones who have lost. So she says, he's the one in line to help with this. Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with his girls, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the servant girls of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So that second chapter gives us an introduction to Boaz, an introduction to the, uh, the story. You see where the love story is starting to go. Uh, you know, it's telegraphed pretty well. Again, the writing in this is, it has been compared to some of the best uh, love stories that have been written of all time, scripture or not. And it, it, it's just so well documented, so well developed that it encourages our hearts. One day, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you will be well provided for? Is not Boaz, with whose servant girls you have been, a kinsman of ours? Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he is finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went out to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly uncovered his feet and lay down. 
In the middle of the night, something startled the man, and he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. Now, again, this is just one of those pictures. It's, it's interesting, it, it's unusual, and it certainly carries certain connotations with it uh, about an intentionality uh, of purpose. Ruth needed a kinsman redeemer. Her mother-in-law told her this is the way to put your need out, to let it be known, and she was willing to do this. It's uh, a little bit different. It's, 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 it's something. Uh, who are you? Boaz asked. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. That sounds innocent enough, spread the garment over me. But there's also, it, it is romantic too, yes. <laughs> it, is, it is definitely romantic. It also has greater meaning. It's not just, I'm cold. It's, I need protection. I need help in my life. She is willing to say, I have a need. You can meet my need. She says this, asking her, him to protect her, put his cloak of protection over her, to bring her into the family, to be her husband, her kinsman, redeemer, her husband. He understands this. <laughs> it's not a surprise to him. He says, The Lord bless you, my daughter. This kindness is greater than which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to redeem, good, let him redeem. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So we get a few other things here, a few little things that we need to pick out. First of all, it seems like Ruth was significantly younger than Boaz. Um, also, she's a pretty good-looking woman. <laughs> and Boaz says, it's amazing that you didn't run after the younger ones, the good-looking ones. Why'd you come to me? <laughs> Why would you pick me? And it really wasn't Ruth that picked him, was it? His God. It just happened to be all these things happened. It just happened to be his field. It just happened this way. God was setting this up, and Ruth understood this, and Ruth was not willing to do what Elimelech did at the beginning of the story. She wasn't going to do what was good in her own eyes. She followed God's leading. She followed God's direction. It says, She lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When he did so, he poured into it six measures of barley <laughs> and put it on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? And she told her everything. Everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley, saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. And Naomi says, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens. 
for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Again, I don't even need to comment on this, do I? This is just so well written. Uh, you, you see where this is all going. So chapter 4 comes along. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate, and he sat there with the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. And then Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. And you're asking, what's going on here? Now, the first part makes a lot of sense. You sit in the gate, you see somebody, you say, come on, sit down. But then he has ten other people sit down. And what you need to know, what you need to understand, what helps you uh, grasp this, is that in Israel, this is where financial transactions were done, in the gates of the city. This is where official business happened. If you wanted to do something official, this is where you did it. You did it in the gates of the town. So when Boaz meets him in the gate of the town and says, sit down, he says, I've got some official business we need to do. I've got something we need to take care of. And he takes 10 other guys and he says, you're, you're, you're going to be the witnesses. So you guys sit here and watch what happens so that we have proof of what's going on here. So with that in place, we understand this is just not some chance meeting that Boaz has been waiting here for him. He's setting it up so that he can take care of business, okay? And as they all sit down, he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling a piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. Now, again... Selling land? Yes, they did sell and purchase land in Israel. They sold it for a time, and then God had placed in a, a position where if you sold your land after, at the 50th year, at the year of Jubilee, it came back to you. You never really lost the land because God had said, this is your inheritance. But poor Naomi, she's not going to be working the land. She wants to sell the land to get some profit off it, to, to have something to live on until that year of Jubilee when it comes back. So there's more here than just selling the land. There's also the fact that we, want, we know whose land this is. He, he mentions Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention, he says to this other guy, and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these sealed here and in the presence of the elders, my people. If you redeem it, you see, this isn't just a sale open to anybody. This is more involved. If you redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and then I am next. So if you want the land, if you want to redeem the land in Abimelech's, in, in Abimelech's name, in Malon and Chilion's name, then you go ahead and redeem it in their name. <laughs> and he says, yeah, I'll redeem it. Sounds good to me. I can make a profit off that. And Boaz says a little bit more. On the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth, the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. You will become the kinsman redeemer. You will have Ruth as your wife and your first child will continue that bloodline. The Moabitess will be your wife. And this guy... He hears that and he says, nah, <laughs> I don't think so. He says, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. I might sully my own good name. I might ruin the reputation. My sons are expecting a certain uh, inheritance. I want to buy something. I want to make them 
uh, prophet and all this. He gives them all these reasons, says, you redeem it, I can't do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, <laughs> for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. How's that? I mean, I, I, what does that mean? I don't know. <laughs> how did this come to be? Who has any idea? But, but this is how they did it. They took off their sandal, they gave it to the other person to prove that the decision was made. This was the method of legitimizing transactions in Israel. Who am I to argue with that? Okay. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. And Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses. And I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from among the town records. Today you are witnesses. And the elders and all those at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel, May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring that the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Maybe they were thinking the same things that we were talking about. Maybe they were saying, okay, you're going to be the kinsman redeemer, the Gaol. Remember how that happened back in the past when Judah's son Ur died and Tamar had a kinsman redeemer who brought Perez. Because that was the same line. It, tried, it, it, it continued right on. So like that of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah. And Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. He went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive. She gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The woman living there said, Naomi is a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse. the father of David. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> this, then, is the family line of Perez. Perez, who was only there because the kinsman redeemer married Tamar, was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram is the father of Abinadab. Abinadab is the father of Nashon. Nashon is the father of Salmon. Salmon is the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, who would have a son named Solomon, who would have sons, who would have sons, who would have sons. So the tribe of Jesse, the lion from the tribe of Jesse, would come, Jesus Christ, 
our Savior, through this genealogy. It's an amazing story, and it reminds me of so many, so many wonderful things. There's two major points I believe we have to draw from this story. The first one's a very obvious one. When you look at Ruth, when you look at the story of Ruth, the character of Ruth, it's an encouragement to all of us. Ruth was a Moabite. She didn't have much going for her, but we're worse. You know that? Ruth might be a descendant of Moab, but we're descendants of Adam. And we've inherited something from the line of Adam even worse than the Moabites inherited from their father. Adam was placed in a perfect world, in a garden set aside for him, where he knew no death, he knew no suffering, he knew God personally and walked with him. And Adam was told one thing. To be obedient to me, you must not eat from the tree of good and evil, the knowledge of good and evil. So what did Adam do? He ate. And sin entered into the world. And every one of us inherits that sin nature. We're all born with two eyes, two hands, two feet, and the sin nature that keeps us separated from a holy God. Adam and Eve were thrown out of the garden, lived by the sweat of their brow. For the rest of the, the entire world is cursed because of this. And when a little baby is born today, they are so sweet, they are so precious, they're kind, they're beautiful. You look at them and say, this is the greatest thing in the world. But that baby has a sin nature. I can tell you because I raised three, ki three kids, okay? I never had to once teach them to lie. I never had to teach them to cheat, never had to teach them to steal. All these things came naturally because we are born with a sin nature. I don't care who you are today, I don't care how sweet and nice you can you are a sinner. Welcome to church, okay? <laughs> We're all sinners. I hope we can accept that. I hope we can understand that, okay? Because the bad news, the bad part of the story comes before the good part, the love part of the story comes. Scriptures tell us we're all sinners, and we've all fallen short of, of, of the glory of God. We cannot live up to the perfection which God demands. The Scripture's very, very clear about this. The wages of sin is death. Wages aren't something you're given as a gift. Wages are something you've earned. You shouldn't be surprised on Friday when that paycheck comes. You should be expecting it because you've earned it. And every one of us has earned death. Not that God is pleased with death, not that God enjoys death, but it's the natural outcome of our sinful selves. And every one of us is under that condemnation. And you can't live a life clean enough to make up for it. It's kind of sad to know, but I want you to understand that. You can't do enough good things to pay it off. You know, good things don't really balance out bad things. Even in our world, it doesn't happen that way. If you're in a relationship with somebody, we got a couple here that have been living 12 years together. Isn't that a blessing? I'll tell you what it's like. It's hard. <laughs> it's hard in this world. Um, when you study interpersonal relationships, you realize that for every 
one bad experience you have, it takes about 99 good experiences to kind of equal it out. <laughs> Every time you do something unkind, it's going to take 99 kind things to make it up. This is why a lot of families break down, because the bad things we remember, the good things we don't. But even if you can overcome one bad thing with 99 good things, see, in God's sight, it's so much worse. Any one bad thing you've ever done is enough to separate you forever. It doesn't matter how many hundreds, how many thousands, how many tens of thousands good things you do, you will never earn your own salvation. Write that down, understand it. It's one of God's laws. However, he knows us. He knows who we are. He knows how bad our situation is. If Ruth had it bad as a Moabite living in Israel, as a, um, you know, a widow, as, as you know, a destitute person, we have it even worse. But we have a kinsman redeemer even greater than Boaz. We have one who came to take care of our problem. Jesus, the Son of God, knew us while we were sinners, while we were steeped in our sin, while we enjoyed our sin. He knew us. He loved us. He loved us so much that he set aside his glory in heaven to come down and be a man. He joined us through the line of David as a man for a number of reasons. But most of all, to be our Savior. To do what we could not do. Because you see, Jesus was born different from everybody since Adam. He was the second Adam, the scriptures tell us. He comes without sin. Right off the bat. Clean and perfect. And he lived a life of total sinless perfection. Being God and being man, he was able to avoid every temptation that came his way. And yes, he was tempted like we were, but was without sin. That's amazing. And he didn't do it just to prove to us that it could be done. He did it for one specific reason, that he might lay down his perfection and take upon himself our failures. He came to take your sin upon himself and to give you his righteousness. He took your sin upon himself and he offered himself up as a sacrifice. He laid his life down on the cross that you might live. And just as Ruth recognized her need and came to Boaz and said, I need you. I need your protection. Cover me with your garment. In the same way, we need to come to Christ and we have to say to him, I need you. I need you to do what I can't do. I need you to take this sin and I need you to give me your righteousness. I need you to cover me with your blood that I might be clean. Friends, if you haven't experienced that today, I urge you, come speak with us. 
come speak with Marlon, come speak with me, come speak with any of us here who know the Lord, that you could leave this place free, forgiven, and ready to live a life that God has called you to. Because you see, there is coming a day when you won't have a choice anymore. Death is part of this world, and we're all going to pass through that unless Christ returns. And when we die, it won't matter whether we're Moabites or Israelites or Americans or Woodbridgeians. I don't even know if we have a name for that, <laughs> what it might be. We used to call, uh, you know, call ourselves Michiganders back in Michigan, and uh, I don't know what it is for Woodbridge, but you know, whatever it is, that's not going to matter. It's not going to matter what you did for a living. It's not even going to matter if you stood up and preached God's word to people. What's going to matter is, is Jesus Christ your Savior? Have you been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb? If not, though God loves you, you will spend eternity separated from Him in hell. But if you'll accept His free gift of salvation, and you can accept it today, it's that easy then you'll spend eternity with him forever. That's the beauty of God's love story. There is a second lesson here. <laughs> and most of you here probably already know the Lord. You're here at the church because you want to worship together. You want to worship this God who has saved you. And as I was praying and saying, Lord, what's the message for us today? What's the message for the believers I'm going to share with you this second message. And I'll tell you, it's, it's only incidentally for you. It's really mostly meant for me, okay? <laughs> Which happens so many times when you're preaching. You're preaching to yourself as much as you're preaching to anybody else. But here's, here's the lesson that I took out of this story as I was planning this and I was getting ready for this. It's not from the looking at Ruth, it's looking at Naomi. Naomi was an Israelite. She had God's blessings in her life. But she looked at her situation and her circumstances and she said, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. I've walked with God for a long time. I spent 50 years being saved. And while there's a blessing to some of that, and there's, in fact, probably there's a blessing to a lot of that. At least for me, there's a bit of a curse there as well. Because you see, I get so comfortable with it. I get to take it for granted. I look at my life and I see the spiritual wealth that God has given me. And I realize I'm a rich, spoiled kid. I'm just a little spoiled rich brat. <laughs> because little things can trip me up and rob me of the joy of my salvation. Let me give you an example, okay? <laughs> Just a couple of weeks ago, I was driving my bus route, which in itself is a blessing from God, that I have a job and that I can do it. But I was driving my bus route, and it had been a long day, and I was looking forward to getting home. Can you relate to that? 
I loaded up my last group of kids, and I thought, man, this is a small group. Yeah, we're having an after-school program. Some of them were going home later. So I had this smaller group of kids. I said, great. And I looked at the, the list of kids, and I said, wow, my last two stops aren't even running today. And my last two stops were farther away from my parking. I got done dropping off the kids 15 minutes earlier than I usually do. And I was five minutes closer to my parking. So by the time I got the bus locked up and everything, I'm thinking, man, I got 20, 25 minutes ahead of time. I get to go home. I get to rest a little bit. I don't have to be rushed. I don't have to be hurried about getting to bed and getting up the next morning. I'm going to have some fun. So I locked up the bus, closed everything up, jumped in my car, <laughs> turned off a Newington under the, Prince, uh, under the uh, Fairfax County Parkway, and I saw the freeway. All four lanes stopped completely. <sighs> Pulled my car over. I looked at my phone. I says, okay, I'm going to try to route an alternate route. Route 1. Oh, it's worse. 123. Oh, that's even worse. It says, best route, even with the traffic, take the freeway. Two major accidents. One at Newington. One <laughs> right at Prince William. I sat for an hour and 15 minutes in traffic. And do you know what was going through my mind? Do you have any idea what was going through my mind? Well, of course, Dave. You've been a, you, you've been a, a Christian for 50 years. You, you've been a minister. You, you've been a music you know, uh, leader. You, you were just sitting there singing psalms, right? <laughs> I wish. <laughs> Do you know what I was doing? I was saying, God, why? Now I know that you're all powerful. You can do anything. I know you're all loving. <laughs> I know you're all knowing. And none of this surprised you. God, let me wrap my brain around this. You get me out 15 minutes early and then take an hour away from me on the other side? Did... I'm embarrassed. I am embarrassed to admit this. But you know what I was thinking? And let's face it, if I don't talk truthfully to you, I'm not talking to you, am I? Do you know what I was thinking? I hate to say this. God, did you do this just because you're some kind of jerk? Did you do this just because you wanted to tick me off? Does it bring you some sort of perverse pleasure? Now, listen to me there. That's my Mara moment. Sometimes it's big things. Sometimes it's earth-shaking things like the loss of a husband, the loss of your kids, the loss of your land. Sometimes it's the little things that trip you up too. Sometimes things that really shouldn't matter. And you lose sight of who God says you are. I can't tell you how many times I've stood in a pulpit and said, if God saved me and did nothing else, it'd be worth it. I can't tell you how many times I thought that, you know, oh, God has given me good gifts. God has blessed me in so many ways. And yet it's so easy for me to take 
all of his blessings, all of his good things for granted and say, God, if you really loved me, I wouldn't be sitting here in traffic. God, if you really loved me, you'd let me go home early so I could play some video games before I fall asleep. God, and it took me days, days to get my mind back to the right place. For God to remind me, you said I'm all you need. It didn't surprise God on that day that there was traffic problems. It didn't take him by surprise. It didn't, it, it, it didn't, it didn't just happen. God allowed it. God ordained it. Why? A couple of reasons. Number one, I've told him his love is enough. He's holding me to it. <laughs> Number two, perhaps to reach a part of me that hadn't been reached before, a part that's still struggling. Because I'll tell you, this Christian walk is not easy. When you accept Christ as your Savior, it's a simple thing. You turn to Him and say, Lord, I want you. Forgive me of my sins and come into my life. And He does. But then, you've got to live it out. And the Scriptures tell us to present your bodies a living sacrifice. I think it says it that way. Because dead sacrifices just lay there. <laughs> but living sacrifices keep trying to get up off the altar. And you have to do it over and over and over again. And there's part of me, after walking with God for 50 years, still isn't committed to His will, His way. And then there's that, that final part, that final lesson I had to learn. It is good for you, Dave for this to be. It is good for you to go through this. It is good for you. Because my will is better than yours. My ways are better than yours. And I have to come to the point of surrender to say, yes, Lord. Your ways are better than mine. Your thoughts are better than mine. Your desires are better than mine. Yeah, I might have walked with him for 50 years. I might have done some crazy things in his name. I might have done some things that people look back and say, wow, how'd you do that? But I'm still learning. I'm still learning what it takes to read this, to study it, and to live it out in my life. And so you see, I'd be less of what God wants me to be if he just parted the waters like Moses, if he just parted I-95 and let me drive right through. <laughs> I'd be less than what God wants me to be. Do you want to be all that God wants you to be? Be ready. And you say to me, ready for what? Exactly. <laughs> ready, <laughs> ready for whatever. <laughs> ready for whatever God decides. He's going to bring you. If God told you what he has planned in your life, I don't know if you could handle it. <laughs> I know I couldn't. 
If God had told me what he had planned for my life, I'd be running screaming through the hills. <laughs> so he only tells you what you need to know. He only tells you that part you need when you need it. And he says, trust me for the rest. And you have to decide whether you're going to do that. Whether you're going to be Naomi or Mara. Whether you're going to let yourself be sweet, as God wants you to be, or if you will turn yourself bitter. Mara said, God has been very bitter to me. You know what? He hadn't. Mara had been very bitter toward God. And you can do the same. You can be known as a man who's generally cheerful, generally kind, or you can be known as a man, boy, I wouldn't expect him to be a Christian. Not with his anger, not with his attitudes. Because God's given you that choice. And he calls to you today to live out the truth he's given you. None of us asked for COVID. None of us asked for the political climate in our world. None of us asked for these things. And they're no surprise to God. Any more than 995 being totally shut down for an hour was any surprise to God. He has placed you here for this time, for this place, and he is saying to you, live your life for me. A couple weeks ago, pastor said something I've thought so many times. Wouldn't it be great if God saved you and just took you to heaven? <laughs> Wouldn't it be wonderful if after God saved you, he just took you to heaven, you didn't have to put up with all this crap? <laughs> I know, that's not the right language you're supposed to use, but hey... Let me tell you, he doesn't for a reason. He doesn't for a reason. Because he loves you and he has a plan for you. You're supposed to do his work in the world. And so you're here to do that. And his work in this world will make you who you're supposed to be in heaven. And so spend this time that God has given you with whatever it is. You were telling me about the pain you have. I understand that. I feel bad for you. I wish you could stand up out of that wheelchair. But let me tell you this. God has a plan and a purpose for the pain he's bringing into your life. And all I can tell you is accept it, live with it, find his joy in it. I don't know what your situation is. I know what this dear family has been going through this year. I'm so glad they're celebrating 12 years. I'm just so glad they're celebrating because they've been through a lot and we need to keep them in our prayers. But you know what, Marlon? <laughs> this church is going to be a thorn in Satan's side and he's going to be fighting it and he's going to be beating on us and you're going to go through some things that you don't want to go through. Go through them. And as you're going through them, you'll have the choice to be bitter, like Mara, or to be sweet. I pray you stay sweet. Are you hearing me today, people? Again, I'm talking most to myself. I've been walking this walk for so long. I really do want to lay it down. I really do want to say that's enough. Okay, Lord, you've given me a good life, and I still can't get it right, so you take me. But God keeps saying no. 
I want you to stick around for a little bit more. And when you're here, you're going to have a choice. Live for me or live for yourself. Do what is right in your own eyes like the people did at the time of Judges or do what is right in my eyes. So where are you today? How are you doing? I know we talk to non-believers all the time like that. I'm talking to you believers. Where are you? How are you doing? Are you Mara or are you Naomi? Are you bitter at the life? The things that God's bringing to you? Are you thankful? Are you sweet? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this love story. I thank you for Ruth and her faithfulness, her willingness to set aside all that she knew and to follow you. Somehow, Lord, I pray that you'll help us to do that in our own lives. Give us your wisdom, your guidance, your strength, Lord. Don't take us out of these problems, Lord. We can't pray that. Don't take us out of these problems, but take us through these problems. Through them, because we're going to go through them anyway. But if we're going to go through them, Lord, help us to go through them with joy and not with heartache. Help us to go through with sweetness, not with bitterness. Help us to go through them your way, not our own. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'd love to hear from you. Visit us at thewaycitychurch.org.